Last week, we uh, finished chapter 4 last week, and so we're going to take a pretty big bite of Scripture here this morning. Uh, I'm actually not going to read it all in one chunk. Uh, we're going to look at three situations, is what I would des- how I'd describe them, three situations in the book of Nehemiah uh, that I think all kind of have a common theme of the fear of God, Okay. So kind of the theme this morning is going to be the fear of God, but we're going to look at three different situations in how that works out very practically in our lives. And when I think about the fear of God, I, I, uh, I am uh, just struck with, uh, I don't know, terror, I guess, at 59 million um, babies having been aborted. I, I think... Um, I'm not going to preach on uh, life this morning, but I, I think what Tony talked about would, uh, would definitely fall into the realm of what we're going to talk about this morning and what it means to fear God. So Nehemiah chapter 5 is uh, where we're at. So that's where we're going to begin. So I'm going to read uh, uh, quite a bit of the first part of it, actually probably just the first 13 verses. Let's do that. And uh, so I'll read that, and then we'll jump in. We'll, that's what our first situation, and then there's two more situations that we're going to uh, look at, and, and we'll just get to them as we come to them in the sermon, okay? So Nehemiah chapter 5, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money from, for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. When I... I was very angry when I heard the outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are, not, you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may He be shaken out and emptied, and all the assemblies said amen, and praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Father, I ask you for insight into your word. I I pray that as we work through these verses, as we work through this account of Nehemiah's life and the rebuilding of the wall and um, the relationships between the people of Jerusalem, God, I pray that you would uh, just link these truths to our lives. God, I pray that you put your finger on 
those areas in our life where we are not fearing you, where we are fearing other things or fearing men in a greater way than, the, than that we are fearing you. God, I pray that uh, as you speak, Father, through your word, that there would be a great reverence and awe for what is, is here for us today. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are uh, we're gonna we're not gonna do any more review. I think probably this is what our sixth or seventh sermon, and so um, hopefully you've got a good context for the book of Nehemiah, and so we don't need to do that as far as where does Nehemiah occur in the Bible. What I would like to do is just remind you of kind of a, of something that we see in the book of Nehemiah that we also see a bunch of other places in the Bible. So uh, as Nehemiah begins this great task, right? So chapter one, he's got a burden from the Lord. God lays this on his heart of what ought to be. Uh, Nehemiah reads things like Isaiah 60 and, and, and sees that Jerusalem ought to be a light to the nations, that, that it ought to be this way, that God has intended and promised and said it would be. And it's not okay so so a burden is what we get when when we we understand something ought to be and it's not and so what tony was talking about earlier is babies ought to live right babies ought to live and they ought to grow and they ought to be taught the glorious deeds of the lord and when they're not allowed to man that that ought to that ought to cause this kink in our hearts we're like whoa 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 that ought not be and then your burden leads you to prayer your prayer leads you to risk-taking action right that's kind of the story in nehemiah so he has a burden about the the city of jerusalem that brings him to four months of prayer and fasting, which brings him to risk-taking action, which lands him in Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, to make Jerusalem the city that God has intended for it to be. Now, last week, we looked at chapter 4, which was all about opposition, right? So even though God's hand is on Nehemiah, even though God is opening doors for him, even though God is, is swaying the heart of the king to enable Nehemiah to rebuild the walls, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, right? So even when God's hand is upon you to do something for him to rebuild your marriage or rebuild your family or rebuild discipleship in your neighbors or or with your friends or your work whatever God has laid on your heart whatever burden is there even when his hand is upon you it does not mean that it will be easy it does not mean that it will be without opposition what we saw in chapter four was this continual just opposition after opposition after opposition after opposition uh, from all kinds mostly in chapter four it was from the Ammonites and from Sambalite and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ashadites they mocked and they belittled and they intimidated and they threatened the people of God all attempting to get them to stop right that, that's that's what the enemy wants out of you he wants you to stop. He wants you to stop trying to lead your family. He wants you to stop trying to reach the next generation. He wants you to stop discipling. He wants you to stop evangelizing. He wants you to stop taking risks for him. He just wants you to stop. Okay, that, that's, that's, the, that's the, the angle of the opposition of the enemy. We talked about the enemy last week being the, the devil, the flesh, our own flesh in the world. And, and, and those, those oppos- opposing forces want you to just stop, okay? Now, interesting thing that we see is is that whenever we see these moves of God we not only see this opposition from the outside but then eventually we also see opposition from the inside 
Okay, you, so you could think of this in terms of attacks from without and attacks from within. All right, so we just went through the book of Joshua. Remember that? That was first part of this year. We had, I don't know, four or five months in the, in the book of Joshua. And if you remember kind of the, the structure of the book of Joshua, the first six chapters are, 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 are Israel facing opposition from the Canaanites, right? From the Jericho and the walls of Jericho. And so you have this outward opposition, outward opposition, outward opposition for six chapters, right? And then in the seventh chapter, all of a sudden there's, there's another threat, but it's a different kind of threat. It isn't from the Canaanites. It isn't from a walled city. You, you know where it comes from? It comes from Achan, one of the Israelite soldiers who defies God's command, takes of the spoil, sins against God and his brothers, and, and brings about defeat in the next battle, the battle of Ai. So in other words, as you look at the book of Joshua, you see, you see opposition from the outside, right? The enemy is striving to keep Israel from obtaining the promise that God has said they would have in the promised land. But, but eventually, you know what you also see? You see their own sin tripping them up, right? The, the first great defeat in, in the book of Joshua comes about not because of the Canaanites or because of, of the enemies from without. It, because, it, it happens because of the enemies within. If you look at the book of Acts, right? Acts is your history book of the New Testament. And so in the book of Acts, what do you have? Well, you, it starts just like Nehemiah with a burden, right? God or Jesus, as he's about to be ascended, rocketed up into the sky, he says, hey, listen, here's what ought to happen. What ought to happen is you're going to be my witnesses and you're going to take this gospel, you're going to take this, this, these truths about my death, burial, and resurrection, and you're going to spread them to the ends of the earth to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth, right? And then in chapter, so he, he ascends into the heavens. Chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes and the church begins to do its work. By chapter four, they're all in jail, right? I mean, there's immediate outward opposition. Chapter four, the, the apostles are in jail and, and they're being beaten and flogged for Christ's sake, right? And so you have this immediate outward opposition. But guess what happens in chapter five? So they get out of jail. They, they pray, by the way, and the place is shaken, and, and they're all filled with the Spirit, and they, they resolve to go out and share the, the gospel even more boldly. And then in chapter 5, you see a different kind of attack. It's from within. They have a church service, and, and this guy named Ananias gets up and, and gives away his property for this great noble cause, for, for the poverty in Jerusalem. And there's this couple, and they're just like, man, we want everybody to think about us like they thought about that guy, you know? And so they, they lie to the church, and they pretend to have done something that they did not do. What I'm saying is, in every move of God, what you see is, whenever you're trying to do something great for God, you're going to get opposition from the outside. You're also going to get, eventually, opposition from the inside. So in Nehemiah, all of chapter 4 was about this opposition coming against them from from these nations around them Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ash okay all, all, all those nations but now in chapter five things begin to unravel a bit but not from the outside but from the inside now what's what's happening in chapter five well in verse one it says there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers Four, and there's several things going on here. There's a famine, okay? There's a famine, which means that everybody's having trouble, right? And the poorest folks don't even have food to eat, okay? But he, here's, here's where things begin to get bad. 
Others have had to mortgage their fields and their vineyards and their homes to the wealthier folks in Jerusalem. Okay, so these are all God's people. They've all come back from the exile, but some of them have more than others, and things got tough. And so when things get tough, those who have are beginning to stick it to those who don't have, right? So, so several things we saw. Some folks are having to borrow money to pay the king's tax at a high interest. They're mortgaging their fields and their vineyards to those who have. And what's ending up, the worst thing that's ending up happening is they're having to sell their children into slavery to stay afloat. All right, so what we see in chapter 5 could be summarized by this. They're not caring for each other well. They're not caring for each other well. Now, you, you might think, well, man, is, is that even a big deal? That's a huge deal, right? They're attempting this great thing for God, which is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that the city can be the place of worship and Scripture and, and, and Christ exalting, God glorifying what, what it ought to be, okay? But if they're sinning against each other, it's going to keep them from completing what God has called them to do. Nehemiah's response is really important to this. Verse 6, he's angry. This is that good, righteous kind of anger. I was talking to somebody this week, and they were, um, we were talking about anger, and they were like, yeah, but there, there is a good anger. There is a righteous anger. And I was like, I agree. And I hardly ever have it. Yeah, I mean, really, like, like when, you, when you add up all the anger that I've ever had in my entire life, uh, the part that's righteous is really small. Like, like you've, you've got to really search to find it, okay? And maybe you're different. Maybe like all yours is righteous. I don't think so. But, you know, maybe. I'm not wanting to accuse you. But I think most of the time when we have anger, it's selfish. It's, man, I want something and I'm not getting it or I didn't get my way or my feelings are hurt. You know, my pride is damaged. That, that's most of our anger. This, this, is not, this is not the case here, okay? This, this is that kind of thin slice of when we ought to be angry, right? And so Nehemiah, is angry because because it's a righteous anger he's angry at what god is angry at he, he this is not a personal irritation this is not this is not a personal offense he, he isn't at odds with somebody who slighted him or something like that no no no. nehemiah is like guys man god has called us to be this kind of people and he's called us to this great work and you guys are sticking it to each other and it's it's going to ruin the work So look at verse 9. Okay, here's what, here's what we really want to get to. Verse 9 says, Nehemiah says, So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? Okay, really important here. Nehemiah says, the reason they're sinning is because they're not walking in the fear of God. He says, I can't believe you're doing this. I can't believe that at a time when we're all trying to rebuild and we're all trying to do this great thing for God, I can't believe you're capitalizing on your brother's poverty. And he says, should you rather fear God? All right, now what I want to do is I want to spend the rest of the sermon talking about that, fearing God, okay? So, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this instance and then Later in chapter 5, there's another situation where Nehemiah says, we're going to do this because we fear God. And then in chapter 6, there's another situation where, where fear of God and fear of man come in. So we're going to link all those together. Does that work? Right? Okay. So, so the rest of the sermon is going to be about the fear of God, but we're going to look at it in three different situations. All right? We're going to camp out just in that theme. All right. 
The fear of God is a big deal in the scriptures. So when, when you look at the scriptures as a whole, um, it's huge. Proverbs 1, 7 says um, that the beginning of wisdom, or the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, you can't, you can't even get to step two. You can't get past kindergarten in, in the spiritual life unless you fear God. Like it's the beginning. Okay, so you can't, you can't go anywhere in faith, you can't go anywhere in wisdom, you can't go anywhere in obeying God unless you fear Him, right? So it, it's, it's, a, it's, a big de- it's a big deal. Now let's get a rough definition of what does it mean to fear God. Well, first of all, it's not being afraid of something because it's evil, right? Some things we're afraid of because they're evil, right? Uh, that dude in North Korea, I think he's a little unpredictable. Right? I think he's a little unstable. I'm not, you know, no, no political commentary here this morning, but like I'm kind of afraid of that guy because I think like he might like to nuke us just cuz, you know, fireworks, you know, for his birthday or something, right? So, so some things you're afraid of because they're evil. They're, they're just unstable. They're, you, you know, right? Some things are, you're afraid of because they're out to get you. Like they're actually, you know, they, they want to harm you, Okay. We are not afraid of God. We, that is not the fear of God, right? Is everybody, everybody clear on that? That's not what we're talking about. We, we do not fear God because he's evil. He's not. He's actually the definition of good, okay? God is good to his core. He is what it means to be good, all right? We're not, we're not afraid of God because he's unpredictable. On the contrary, God is faithful. Like he's the opposite of unpredictable. He is completely faithful to his character of goodness. So God is good and you can always 100% of the time count on God acting consistent with his character. He's not out to get you. In fact, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says he sent his own son to save you. He sent his own son to take your sin upon himself to die a brutal death, to be raised on the third day in order to draw you into his family. He is the opposite about to get you. He's actually for you. So we don't fear God for those reasons. Rather, what it means to fear God is to be in awe of God. Okay, it is to see his glorious majesty. It is to see his awe-inspiring power and justice and fury and judgment against sin. All right, so here's here's a big part of this, okay? Fearing God flows from seeing God. So if you're here this morning and you you have no fear of God, one of the things that may be wrong is that you don't see him. Or you see him wrongly. Like your, your, your definition of God, your idea of God has come from television or Hallmark cards or the cartoon strip. And so you've got no fear of God because you don't know who he is. Or you have a wrong idea who he is. So, so fearing God always flows from seeing God. So and where do we see God? Well, we see him in the scriptures most clearly, right? So, so let's just real quick. So Isaiah 40, you know what Isaiah 40 says? Isaiah 40 describes God as the one who holds the oceans, who measures out the oceans of the earth in the hollow of his hand. All right? And then I'll tell you something about God. Isaiah chapter 40 tells us that God is the one who marks out the heavens with a span. In other words, God raises, stretches his arms out and, and, and measures the Milky Way. All right, Isaiah 40 tells us that God weighs the mountains on a scale. Can you imagine it? Everest, K2, Denali, uh, Pikes Peak, puts them on a scale, tells us how much they weigh. All right, Isaiah is describing for us who God is. Job 38 says God has commanded the morning since time began. 
Who is God? He's the one that every day says, it's time, morning. He's the one that makes the, 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 the rotation of the earth. He's the one who, who, who spins it on its axis. God is the one who sustains and controls all things. Acts 17.25 says that God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. His Son is Jesus. Jesus is Trinity with God the Father. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the bread of life, and he's the fountain of living waters, and he's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. The book of Revelation says he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last, the living one. Behold, he has died, and he's alive forevermore. Revelation chapter 1, John sees him, and he describes him as his eyes blaze like a flame of fire. His voice is like the roar of many waters. His face shines like the sun at full strength. The Bible is very clear. He is the Son of God. He is the King of kings now because he's that how do you approach him you see if that's who he is and he's so much more but the bible gives us these glimpses of who god is and and so if that's who god is then how do you approach him you see here's where this posture of fearing him comes in so do you approach god as just casually what's up is that is that how is that how you come before this god The the God who measures the Milky Way by stretching out his hands. The God who takes Everest and puts it on a scale. The God who is the living one, the Alpha and the Omega, the judge and the jury. The one who will bring wrath, the one who will destroy the world by fire. Do you come to that God casually? Proudly, how about that? Do you come as his equal? This is the way that most Americans come to the God of the universe. As if you're going to tell him a thing or two. Here's the way most Americans come to the God of the universe. They come saying, hey, let me tell you what's wrong here. You did, you did a pretty good job, but, but let, let me show you. Over here in Romans 1, now you got that wrong, you know. I'm sorry, you, you messed that up. And, and over here, well, that's not the way it is. Is that the way that you approach God? Do you come to him in a disinterested, indifferent way? Again, most Americans, yes. Bored with God. How do I know that? How do most people respond to worship? (sighs) Okay, yeah, all right, let's go. Is that the way that we come to this God? Kind of like we... We approach the items on the clearance rack at Walmart, you know, just kind of perusing through, nothing much good here. If you see him for who he is, you will approach him in fear. Okay, so, so see, seeing God is, the, is at the heart of fearing God. So when you see him for who he is, then you approach differently. Any of you seen, uh, I think I saw it on Facebook, but I think it's been on YouTube, it's all over. It's this, uh, it's really a funny video. It's this, this uh, video of this guy, he's, he's with his family and they're in Ireland and they're, they're like on those really steep cliffs that, you know, 
just just straight down off into the Atlantic Ocean. And this guy is there and, and he wants, he's drawn to the beauty and the majesty of it. And he wants to see it, but he's so afraid. He's got vertigo. He's so afraid of heights that he's like inching on his belly. Have you seen that? Yeah, it's really, it's really a funny video. Like he's, he, he can't get there, you know. He's like flat on his belly and he's just like inching, you know. And he'll get close and he'll, ah, you know. And then, and then he gets, but, it, but, but, he, but he keeps going because it's, it's majestic. It's glorious. You know, he wants to, he wants to see it, but he's, but he's on his belly, you know, and just inch after inch and he'll back up and then inch. All right. That's really kind of the way that you should approach God, honestly. And you're going to be like, well, where's love coming in? We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. But, but first we've got a fear. It, the fear of God is to be in awe of him, to tremble at the thought of being at odds with him, to tremble at the thought of finding ourselves opposing him. That's why I would say most Americans don't have the fear of God because many Americans are not afraid at all to say, I disagree. Whew. Like I'm honestly, I get a little queasy saying that to my dad. My dad is an imperfect sinner. He will tell you that. He's a good man. But, but I struggle even to this day at 45 years of age for me to come against my dad and say, I think you're wrong. I, I just, and so to be so arrogant that you feel perfectly comfortable saying, God, you're wrong. That there's no fear of God there. To treat him as if he's a pushover, as if he's toothless, harmless, impotent. No. Revelation 19.15 says, that he will slay the nations with the sword of his mouth. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's who he is. Now, in our definition, we need to understand that the fear of God and the love of God go hand in hand. You're like, man, what you just described, well, how, how, can, I, how can I ever love if, if I'm that? Well, no, 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 they actually go hand in hand. Okay, so, so here, here's the truth. You can't ever get to the point where you love God until you first fear him. You know why? Because if you don't fear him, you haven't seen him. We just established that, right? If you haven't seen him, then how can you love him? How can you love something you don't know? How can you love it? You know, the only way you can love something you don't know is to make it up, which is exactly what a lot of people have done. They, they've made up for themselves their own God. How many times do you hear people saying things like, well, my God, you know, it's like they, they what did Dan say the other day? You were teaching at the kids. Weren't you? Didn't, you, didn't you give the illustration of Build-A-Bear? Yeah. Was, that, was that you? I thought you were telling me about it. Yeah, like, like, like Build-A-Bear God, you know, you just, you build your own, you know. Well, my God, you know, he's got a little this and this. And I'm gonna put sprinkles and, you know, rainbow hat on him, you know. And uh, that, no, I love him. Or you love your own imagination. You don't love God because you can't love what you don't know. And if you've not seen him, if you don't fear him, then you've not seen him. And if you've not seen him, then you can't love him. But if you have seen him, then you do fear him. And if you do fear him, then you actually, remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You're on your way to loving him. Yeah, you're on your way to receiving what Christ has, has done for you, what God has accomplished for you. You're on your way to, to understanding who Jesus is and being, being joined to him by faith. You see, both the fear of God and the love of God, they both do the same thing. They admire the character of God. They both do the same thing. The fear of God respects the character of God. The love of God 
admires the character of God. His mercy, his grace, his awesomeness, his justice, right? So, so the, the two actually work hand in hand. In fact, I would add one more. The fear of God goes hand in hand with obedience to God. So whenever you're not being obedient to God, we'll look at this in just a second. Whenever you're not being obedient to God, you're not fearing him. Let, let me show you a cool verse that ties all three of these together. Deuteronomy 10.12. Deuteronomy 10.12 says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, there's obedience, walking in his ways is obedience, and to love him. Isn't it cool? Right there, right there all three together. All three together. What does he want? Fear him, walk in his ways, love him. You see, those, those three go hand in hand. They're, they're not inconsistent with one another, but rather they work in tandem with one another. Okay, so quickly, so, so hopefully there we've established the fear of God. Now, what I love about Nehemiah 5 and 6 is I, I think we actually see how this works out. So one of, the, one of the struggles with a concept like the fear of God is like, okay, but how does that hit my life? Okay, let me show you how it hits your life, all right? So first situation is this, this situation of these poor people, right, who are, who are being oppressed by their brothers. And, and Nehemiah says, why are you doing that? You ought to be fearing God. So in other words, you, you're oppressing your brothers. You're not caring for your brothers. You're sticking it to your brothers because you don't fear God. Now, why would he say that? Well, because they are clearly disobeying God. Now, Solomon John Baptist from India ought to know that I am preaching. I don't know why he would not know that. Um, it's 11 and a half hours difference, but still, he, he knows that. Um, Leviticus 25, okay? So, so here's what these guys would have known, okay? Leviticus, Leviticus 25, 35. I'm going to read this to you, okay? Remember what's happening uh, in Nehemiah? They're charging interest to their brothers. They're taking advantage of the poor. They're enslaving their brothers. Okay, real quickly, all right? They would have had Leviticus, okay? So listen, Leviticus 25, 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and gave you to the land of Canaan to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner, and he shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. All right, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Like that's actually... In one passage there condensed, you have everything that Nehemiah 5 deals with. So what's happening here? What's happening here is there's something wrong when you're not afraid to disobey God's word. Nehemiah's like, ought you not be afraid? He opens up to Leviticus 25. You are doing exactly against the word of God. Why aren't you afraid? What's wrong? Fearing God means when he speaks, we listen. One step further. It means we're afraid not to listen. You've had this experience, I bet. If you've been someplace like, I don't know, um, Mexico or um, Bahamas or something like that. You're, you're walking down one of those touristy strips, right? 
and there's a guy selling bracelets or, you know, doing the hair braiding thing, and they're like, hey, hey, you, stop, come here. I don't know about you guys. I am not bothered at all by keeping continuing to walk. I'm not afraid just to ignore. I'm not afraid just to act like I didn't even hear it. A couple reasons. I, I don't think they're really interested in me. Like, I don't think they really have something for me. I don't believe they have any authority over my life. I don't believe that I am bound in any way to buy a trinket. Um, I don't think it's profitable probably for either of us since I'm not going to. So I, I just, I feel perfectly fine ignoring that and continue to walk. I was putting away laundry uh, this weekend and uh, our little guy was on the couch watching Animal Mechanicals, eating him a little snack. And as I'm hustling to get the laundry put away, he says, hey, come here. I didn't feel bad at all about continuing with my job, you know. It's not that I don't love him. I, I do. I mean, I, I love him. And it's not that I, we're not taking good care of him. We are. He's got his blanket, crackers, animal mechanicals. I, I just feel like I do not need to be at your beck and call, right? I, like that's not good for either of us to work this thing this way. And so I'm cool just... Continue with my work until, you know, you appropriately ask me or whatever. What if you're in Germany going through the airport and there's a military guy dressed in military fatigues with a machine gun and he says, hey, you, come here. Yes, sir. Here's my passport. What's the difference? I fear that guy. Honestly, like not, not because I think he's evil or unpredictable or out to get me. I don't. But, but I understand that because he has that uniform on and because of what he represents, I, I better listen. All right, so question. How do you respond to God's word? When God says, hey, you. Hey. Your life, you need to be, you need to do this. Here's my plan for you. How do you respond to that? You, you know how you ought to respond to it? Isaiah 66, verse two says, all these things my hand has made and so all these things have came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. That, that's how you ought to respond when God speaks. Listen, if, if you're able to ignore God, if you're able, you know, when he speaks to you, when his word hits your life, when, when it clearly communicates that you are living in a way that is contrary to what he said, when your heart, your actions, your lifestyle, your relationships, your business dealings, your treatment of others is in direct defiance to God's truth and you are able to simply ignore him, just, just let it go on by. You don't know who you're dealing with. Like you're not fearing God, but, but I, I would say this even more. You're not fully aware of who you are dealing with. Hebrews 12, 25 says, let us not refuse him who is speaking. And then you follow the line of thought and it says, because our God is a consuming fire. Okay, quickly. Um, I'm seeing by the time this was a bad idea. Um, second, well, we can do this quick. All right, so second, second 
situation. Uh, look in verse 14, same chapter, Nehemiah 5, okay? Moreover, from that time, I'm reading verse 14 and 15. From that time, I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah from the 20th to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them from their daily rations 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so. Are you reading with me? I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. Okay, so situation number two, Nehemiah is the governor. Uh, and, and as we go ahead and read on here, I mean, there's a lot that comes with that. Like, you've got this huge staff. I mean, imagine, he's running the government of Judah, okay? He's got a huge staff. He's got dignitaries coming in. He's got visitors. He's got people to come and see him, okay? In fact, he says in verse 17, moreover, they were at my table, 150 men. How, how would you like that? You're responsible to feed 150 people every day. He talks about all the stuff that he had to buy at his own expense. Verse 18, uh, what, what was prepared at my own expense, um, one ox, six choice sheep, birds, every 10 days. Can you imagine slaughtering an ox every day? That's what you needed to feed all the people that were, at, were, that were at your table. And Nehemiah is doing all that at his own expense. He is not taking a salary. Why? Well, he tells us because of the fear of God. Now, was it wrong for him to take a salary? Absolutely not. It was right for him to take a salary. He deserved the salary. Okay, but, but, but right now the people are oppressed, right? They're selling their children into slavery to pay their debts. And Nehemiah, the thought of him making that burden heavier, he said, man, I can't do that. I can't do it because I fear God. In other words, he's saying, these are God's chosen people, and for me to oppress the sons of a king, I won't do that. There's a really cool verse in Zechariah, chapter 2, verse 8. This is how Zechariah feels about you as people. Uh, this is how God feels about you as people. Zechariah 2, 8, it says, um, To the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You know what the apple of your eye is, right, that? Go ahead and touch it right now. See how it feels. Okay, so God, God says this. He says, whenever those nations came in and plundered you, they're poking me in the eye. So you get where Nehemiah's coming from? Man, I'm not going to do that. I, I am not going to oppress God's people. Why? Because I fear God. Man, that should transform how the church treats each other. That should actually transform everything in your life. Your marriage. If, if you're married to a believer, the big deal there is you're married to a child of the king. For me, it's a daughter of the king. I ought not oppress. I ought not poke God in the eye. I ought to fear to do that. Okay, last one. We're, I know we're hurrying here. Um, but chapter 6, I, I want you to see all these together because I, I just think there's this continual theme. All right, so this one's a little longer. Okay, so chapter 6, verse 10. Uh, when I went to the house, so go to the next chapter, verse 10. When I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Del Deliah, uh, son of uh, Metabel, who is confined to his home. This guy's a prophet, by the way. He said, let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. He, he, he ramps it up. They're coming to kill you by night. Nehemiah, there is an assassination on your life coming. 
Come on, we got to go. Let's go hide in the temple. We'll shut the doors. We'll go in the inside. We'll shut the doors and we'll hide in there. That's what he's telling him. Verse 11. But I said, should a man such as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. And then here's an interesting verse, verse 13. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Now the reason I wanted to get to this one is because this, this one switches it around. Ne- Nehemiah actually says, I will not be afraid of the threats of these men because it's sin. Why is it sin, Nehemiah? Well, he's just built a case in the last two chapters. Because when you fear men more than you fear God, that's sin. You see, their strategy here is terrorize Nehemiah with fear, and the fear will keep him from the mission of God. It'll shut him up. Everything else has failed. And so now they're like, let's terrify him with fear. Let's get him out of the way. Let's get him off the wall. Let's get him away from leading the people. Let's shut down his mission. Let's threaten him. His own personal life, assassination at night. You're never going to know when it's going to come. And then he'll, he'll stop serving God. Worst part of this is they try to use the temple. Let's go in the temple. Nehemiah knows he's not a priest. He's not supposed to go in the temple. In fact, you know, I, I think in verse 11 he says, Guy said, does I go in there and live? No way. Numbers 18 tells us, If you're not a priest, you're not supposed to go in there. What's Nehemiah again saying? He's saying, listen, I fear God more than I fear these assassinators. Why why is fearing men a sin? And the heart of that is because you're not fearing God. The fear of God actually eclipses all the other fears. You see, really, the good news today is if you have a healthy fear of God, all the other fears start dropping off. Like, I, I, I bet there's people in this room, you're locked up. You're, you're not serving, you're not loving, you're not living as you ought to in your marriage, you're being the parent, because you're, you're, you're afraid. You get this crippling anxiety about your health or your neighbors or situations in your life or your kids, and, and it's, it's got you locked up. The answer for that is to fear God, honestly. Like, like when you, when you fear God rightly, all the other fears start dropping away, which is exactly what happens in Nehemiah 6. Nehemiah's like, I'm not going to fear these guys. That's sin. I, I'm, I'm going to fear God. God gave me the mission. God told me to build the wall. God's hand was on me. So I'm not, I'm not, getting, I'm not moving from that. In Matthew chapter 10, Verse 28, listen to what Jesus says. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who ought you to fear? You ought to fear God. Isaiah 51, this is an interesting one. In verse 12, God says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you're afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who's made like grass? And have forgotten the Lord your maker. God says, I'm the one that's taking care of you. 
I'm the one that's comforting you. How dare you be afraid of men? Implied there is what? You think they're bigger than me? Do do, do you think somehow it's out of my control? Men are small. Circumstances are small in what they can do. The implications on your life compared to how God matters in your life. Why, why is it so often that we care so much more about what people think? And you're like, I, I don't. Well, let me ask you this. How many of you have had the experience of doing something shameful, saying something cruel or hurtful, being caught in a deception or a compromising situation, and the thing that haunts you is what? What if, what if other people find out? What if this gets put on Facebook? Like you're, you're, you're laying up in bed at night. Can't go to sleep because you're thinking about, I shouldn't have said that. And what if they tell so-and-so? And what are they going to think? And now when I go into the basketball game, what's everybody going to? What actually should we be bothered by? <laughs> what, what's God think about what I did? You see, when we rightly fear God, it eclipses every other fear. It, it's the big deal, not all the other stuff. Well, quickly, our, our time is way up, so Michelle, come, come up here, and you start playing, and I'll just finish, okay? Um, <laughs> pick a short song. Um, <laughs> look what happens. All right, so Nehemiah does not, he does not, he's not fear. So verse 15, ready? Chapter 6. The wall was finished in the 25th day of the month of, of Elul in 52 days. Isn't that cool? Do you kind of feel like you've been a part of this? Those of you who've been part of the whole series, like, they're done. Man, they pushed through all this opposition, and they finished it. And then look what happens, verse 16. When all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us, they were afraid. I think that's a great twist, right? Listen. And they fell greatly in their own esteem. You know what happened? They got a little bit of the fear of God. Let me read a little bit more. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. They finished and and they realized, man, God's got his hand on these guys. And all of a sudden, they fell in their own esteem. They're not so cocky anymore. And and they began to fear God. Man, when you fear God, that, that affects other people. They need to see that. Father in heaven, I just ask you to pull all this together. And uh, God, I pray that we would see you for who you are this morning, that we would uh, approach you with an appropriate level of respect and honor and, and fear and awe. Lord, that we'd be the people that tremble at your word, Father, that when you speak to us, we would be afraid to be opposed to that. We'd be afraid to set ourselves against you. We'd be afraid to to show with our life or even our words that we think we're right and you're wrong. Father, we don't. We submit to you. We, we honor you, Father. We, God, we, we look to you as our king. Father, we pray that you would show us your glory, that we would fear and love you. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.